Thank you, Dave, Vicky, Becky, Rods, for helping us focus our thoughts through that opening. It just felt like the opening was just a, an attitude of prayer. Just feel like we're praying this morning, just through that whole opening. How we've been looking at our hearts already. How God is the one who fills our hearts as we sang. Indeed, He is the one we praise. He is the one we adore. And He is the one our hearts hunger for. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking into events preceding the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus. We've considered the Last Supper Jesus shared with His disciples. The agony He endured just thinking about what lay ahead of Him. We've Looked at, we've discussed or looked at the discussion he had about kingship with the chief priest Pilate. And we've also looked into Pilate's words, what is truth? We've heard about his personal struggle in sending Jesus to die and his shot back at the Jews by declaring, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. This morning we're going to look at the crucifixion and burial of our Lord Jesus from John's Gospel in chapter 19, verses 23 to 42. And if you're following in the, the Brown Bibles in the pews, it can be found on page 1684. Let's just open with a word of prayer, shall we? Father in heaven, we just thank you for this opportunity to gather. As we've sung this morning, Father, we just are in awe that the God of wonders, the God who is that of the universe and the galaxies, created and loved us and loves us. It's so amazing, Father, that one as great and awesome and mighty as you would love ones as small and insignificant as us. And Father, you are holy, holy, holy indeed. And because of that holiness, Father, you had to create a way for us to have a relationship with you. And we just marvel that you did it, the way you did it, Father, that you sent a lamb to redeem us. That lamb was your son. And we just, as we open your word this morning, Father, we're just in awe of what Jesus went through for that to happen for us. It's scary, it's brutal, but Father, it just shows the depth of your love for us and we thank you for it. Father, we thank you for your word and your spirit. And as we open it, your word this morning, Father, we just pray that your spirit would guide us. Help me, Father, as I speak and help us all, Father, as we just reflect further on you and your love and your goodness for us. And as we've prayed already, indeed, may the glory all be yours. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not going to read the whole passage this morning. Uh, I think it's a very familiar passage for most people. And uh, I ask that if you, you're looking for it, just follow along in your Bible. So I'm just going to maybe read a, a couple of verses from Carrie's uh, message last week. And just by way of introduction, and then just uh, stop, stop just as we get into our passage. So John 19, I'm going to start at uh, 
verse 19. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. And our passage starts here. Then the soldiers crucified Jesus. They took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So just picking up there, I'm going to just read a few different verses, and you may want to follow along in in your Bibles. I'm going to look at some of the instructions that the Israelites were given over time, and look at some of the, the prophecies that we see in this passage. You shall make the robe of the ephod olive blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it with a woven binding around the opening like the opening in a garment so that it may not tear. From Exodus 28. Psalm 22. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Luke 23. This is to Mary. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Back to Psalm 22. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. As the deer pants for the flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. From Psalm 42. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 63. From Exodus 12. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. Isaiah 53 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And therefore I will divide among him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Deuteronomy 21. If a man has committed a crime punishable by by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Zechariah 13. On that day there will be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse him from sin and uncleanness. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Back over to Exodus 12. 
It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house. You shall not break any of its bones. And you see the same sentiment in Numbers chapter 9. Back to a few Psalms, 22. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. Psalm 34 says, He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. And Isaiah 53, verse 9 says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. One last one from Revelation chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. A couple of weeks ago, Jim provided solid evidence regarding the reliability and the accuracy of the Bible, which is God's word for us. In our passage this morning, we've just seen lots of evidence from the Bible that demonstrates Jesus is who he said he was. He's the Messiah the Savior sent from God. And he's sent to redeem those who would believe in him. Last week, we learned that Pilate had Jesus scourged even before he sentenced him to death. And he was, I think he was doing this in order to placate the crowd. Perhaps they would have seen the punishment inflicted on Jesus and said, okay, good enough. But no, It seems that when they saw the blood, they cried for more. Crucify him. Crucify him. We don't want Barabbas. Crucify him. And interestingly, Jesus was crucified almost immediately after Pilate had released Barabbas and delivered Jesus. Now normally, there would have been a period of at least a couple of days, or in Rome, there would have been a period of at least a couple of days between the time the sentence was passed and the crucifixion. But that doesn't seem to be the case here at all. Now, it's been suggested that Jesus may have even been scourged again because that was the norm at a crucifixion. So we don't know if that happened for sure, but it could have. It's, it's been suggested as a possibility. It's also been suggested that you know, this detail wouldn't have been necessary to put in because the people in those days were all too familiar with crucifixion. They didn't need to have all the details, so we don't see it. I don't know if that happened or not, but it's kind of scary to think that in those days, the scour- there was no limit on the scourging. It happened until the person was almost dead and then they stopped. And then he goes to be crucified. Now, clothes in Jesus' day were handmade and quite valuable, probably pretty expensive. They didn't have a whole bunch of clothing stores to go and purchase whatever they wanted. They couldn't just go to get the latest fashions. They couldn't pick up their phone and dial up, uh, call Amazon or whatever it is, however you get to Amazon on your phone and order something, have it delivered to your house. Clothes, uh, and taking the person's clothes just seemed to add to the overall cruelty to this whole process, didn't it? It seems to be, at that time anyway, it was one of the fringe benefits of being a soldier. You got the person's clothing. And we don't know for sure, but 
in those days, the mother often wove the tunic or created, made a tunic for the child. And this tunic itself, the one that they didn't tear, may have been made by Mary. John tells us that Jesus' mother Mary, her sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene were near the cross. When you look at the other Gospels, at first it seems that we might have some discrepancies in terms of who was there. But Salome, who's mentioned in Mark's Gospel, is thought to be Mary's sister. She was also the mother of the sons of Zebedee, referred to in Matthew's Gospel. Mary, the wife of Clopas, was the Mary of James and Joseph, mentioned in Mark's Gospel, and is also thought to be Joseph's sister. So in other words, we had Mary, the mother of Jesus, her sister, her sister-in-law, there at the cross. Jesus honors his mother by entrusting her into the care of the beloved disciple, namely John. It's likely that his siblings in Galilee weren't in any position to comfort and care for Mary at this time. We're told from this time on, John took her into his home, which may likely mean that he took responsibility for her. It's likely that at this point, John took Mary away from the cross, away from that scene. And the others probably went with her, went with them, moved back. Uh, and we see this in the other Gospels where they said the women watched from a distance. They didn't need that close-up view. Early on we read about Simon's prophecy to Mary, a sword will pierce your soul. I can't, can't even begin to fathom what it would have been like for her to be there to see what was happening. Likewise, probably can't appreciate what God the Father and Jesus really endured that day either, can we? But let's look into it a little bit. Before we do that, I'm going to take a, a quick tour, or sorry, a quick detour for a bit of context. Just before his arrest, Jesus had shared the, the Last Supper, we think it's the Passover meal, with his disciples. Now, a Passover meal normally would have included four cups of wine. And they represent the promises God made in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. We read, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord your God, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched hand and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. So again, four. I will bring you out of Egypt. I will deliver you from slavery, from bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And I will take you to be my people In other words, I will protect you. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus shares the Last Supper with his disciples. In Luke 22, starting in verse 15, we read this. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. 
For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Okay, detour over, we're back on track. So, in, in previous messages, we've read about the physical suffering Jesus endured before he left Pilate, and during that time he was on the cross. Again, we've read about the mental anguish he endured when he was in the garden, praying for the cup to be removed from him. Then Jesus goes through the worst part of all, when he's nailed to the cross. Or was that the worst part? The punishment he bore for us, as horrific, as brutal as it was, was bad enough. Then from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, or from noon to three, there was darkness over the land. Jesus was in darkness as well, wasn't he? Matthew and Mark note that at the ninth hour, or three o'clock, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me all alone? Some of us have been enjoying a a study, and some of you have probably looked at it before, called uh, That the World May Know by Ray Vanderland. And it's interesting uh, in it, he suggests that when they were at that last supper and Jesus held up the cup, Jesus didn't drink the fourth cup, that cup of protection. And when he called out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's as if the Father was saying, Sorry, no protection for you at this time. I believe that this is the worst of the suffering Jesus endured for us. The feeling that his Father had turned away and had left him all alone, and that was just unbearable. He can deal with the physical suffering, he can deal with the taunts, he can deal with everything else, but he couldn't handle the fact that his father seemed to have walked away from him. In the book of Genesis, we learn about Jacob, or Israel, and his family. Chapter 37, verse 3, we read, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the other brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Later on, Israel tells Joseph to go see how they're doing. And when they see him coming, first they decide to kill him. Then they end up throwing him into the pit. And then they see this opportunity and they sell him to uh, some slave traders. The Ishmaelites take Joseph and they take him over to Egypt. And what's Jacob's reaction? Genesis 37, we read this. Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And later on, the brothers are sent to Egypt to get food. The first time they go without the youngest brother, without the youngest brother Benjamin, but they're told if they want any more after that, they have to bring him. But Jacob isn't going to let him go. It seems he'd rather starve to death than to lose his son, another son. 
Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are about to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Putting the feeling of the other brothers aside, we see the depth of the love Jacob had for his sons, Joseph and Benjamin. In Second Samuel, we read about David's son Absalom, who conspired to take over the throne and was going to kill his father as well. And he went out of his way to show everyone just how he was opposed to David. And he did things to motivate his followers. Later on, the two sides are ready for, for battle. And David tells his commanders, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. Really? He's trying to kill you? He did something just unthinkable with the concubines that were left to look after the house. And he's trying to take over your throne. And David says, deal gently with him. When David finds out Absalom was killed, he's deeply moved, went to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son? The feelings of those who went to battle for him aside. We see the depth of love the father had for his son. I can't... Part of me says, wow. It's just the love that the fathers had for their son. It's just so amazing. Part of me kind of says, well, what about all the other people that seem to be about fourth class, not second? It didn't matter, but focusing on that love. And I wonder what God felt when he turned away from his son Jesus just for that little time when he hung on the cross. When Jesus was paying the price for our sin, as much as Jesus shows his love for us in dying for us, I think so does God the Father. As the song goes, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch like us his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away, as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Soon after on the cross, Jesus indicated he was thirsty, so someone soaked a sponge with wine vinegar, which would have been what the common people had to drink. And I think this thirst is evidence of his humanity. In John chapter 4, we see his divine nature when Jesus told the woman at the well, if she knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, give me a drink, she would have asked him and he would have given her living water. He also said, whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty forever. When Jesus had received the drink, he said, it is finished. He didn't say, I am finished, but he said, it is finished. Jesus came to die for each of us, to pay the price for our sins. And his part of the work was done. He didn't die for anything he had done wrong, but for all the things everyone else, including me, including you, have done. How many of us would give our lives to pay the price for something somebody else did? Okay, well, that, that standard is pretty high. Let's lower it a bit. If someone was careless 
and broke something of value to you, would you be willing to just forgive and not expect them to replace it? What about if somebody stole or purposely broke something of value to you? Could you just turn around and forgive? Or would you expect that there be a price to be paid? What if somebody did something serious against you or somebody that you loved? I'm not trying to diminish the serious nature of sin, but it just, to me it just shows how much Jesus loves us and was willing to give of himself for us. When Jesus said, it is finished, he meant the price for our sin is paid in full. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In chapter 10, Jesus said, he's the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. In 10, 17, 18, he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Luke tells us that Jesus called out before he died and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus voluntarily gives up his life. His body just didn't give out on him. At the Passover, the afternoon sacrifice was made at 3 o'clock. The priest would ascend to the highest place in the temple and he would blow the shofar. And everybody knows that the lamb, or the sacrifice, is going to die. On this day, on this Passover, there was a human sacrifice, the lamb of God, who is going to die for each of us at that same time when the shofar blows. Some lambs die, but much more importantly, the Lamb of God dies for us. The Romans were quite sadistic in their punishment. Although they didn't invent crucifixion, they were really good at it. Some people suffered for days before they died on the cross. And the bodies would be left there just hanging, add to the shame, the humiliation, and they'd be food for the animals and a reminder of others of the penalty of crossing Rome. The Jewish people, however, requested that the legs be broken and the bodies taken down, as we read, they're not to be left hanging there, not to be overnight and certainly not on a Sabbath. Sounds a little strange, doesn't it? Hey, Pilate, can you go over and break their legs? Like, it's like tick-tock, tick-tock, you know. It's getting late. We need to get the bodies down. And strange request, isn't it? Can you go break their legs? But breaking the legs, and they'd use a, a club or a hammer, would speed up the death. It could be a combination of shock, the loss of blood. Also, they need to be able to push back up so that they can exhale, and so they'd suffocate. Alfred Edersheim notes that it was customary for a soldier to deliver a coup de grace following the breaking of legs, which would explain the spear thrust. And the breaking of the legs in this case, it almost seemed like a cheap shot, you know. You're getting off easy now, so we'll break your legs just before we kill you. It's pretty sadistic, but when you look at it, there's nothing pretty about it. And this is what Jesus went through for us. So they break the legs of the first person with them, then the second, then they get to Jesus and they realize he's already dead. 
And one of the soldiers pierces his side with the spears, bringing out a sudden flow of blood and water. Jim noted a couple of weeks ago the water could be a result of something called pleural effusion, where the sac around the lungs under extreme trauma could be filled with water. And this could have been punctured by the spear. Another reason, possible reason for the water could be pericardial infusion, where the sac around the heart, or the pericardium, is filled with fluid. In this case, Jesus would have died from heart failure, or a broken heart, so to speak, instead of suffocation, which is what many from crucifixion normally died from. And the water and blood here is important, as there are many who argue Jesus wasn't truly a man, and that he didn't really die. But this demonstrates that he was a man indeed, and indeed, he did die. The Gospels tell us Joseph of Arimathea was a good, upright, rich man who was waiting for the kingdom of God. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, but did not agree to their plan. Joseph requested and received permission to take Jesus' body. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, a Pharisee, who came and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes. Now this was the same person who came to Jesus by night earlier on, and from whose visit we have those famous words, the familiar words of John 3.16. And the two of them wrapped Jesus' body in cloths and spices. Joseph and Nicodemus showed incredible love and respect for Jesus when they took his body, when they prepared it, and when they laid it in a tomb. It was dangerous and expensive. They had nothing to gain from this, at least nothing from a worldly perspective. And from a worldly perspective, actually, they had an awful lot to lose. Both kept their questions and likely their beliefs about Jesus a secret, but now it was in the open. They were vulnerable. It was also likely that there were members of the Sanhedrin there at the crucifixion. Not that they normally would have gone there. That was unthinkable. But it's likely that they were there to convince people that Jesus was not the king of the Jews, as Pilate had put on the sign. And although we don't know exactly when, it seems that both Joseph and Nicodemus became disciples of Jesus. His body was placed in a new tomb that was cut into a rock. It had never been used before. And we're told it was in a garden as opposed to a cemetery. We don't know the exact location of that tomb, but we are told that there's a garden tomb outside the old city of Jerusalem, which may have been the one he was buried in. The tomb would have been worth a fortune, something only the wealthiest could afford. And when you add in the volume of spices that was used, this was a burial for royalty. The Bible tells us that some things are not to be mixed. For example, Leviticus 19.19 says, You shall keep my statues, you shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a cloth made of two kinds of material. Deuteronomy. When the Lord your God gives them over to you, you defeat them, then you must devote to them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and shall show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters and the sons or taking their daughters for your sons. And in Second Corinthians, Paul tells us not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Vanderlam suggests that this command not to mix unlike things or unlike people extends to sharing a tomb. In other words, 
you can't mix unrelated people in a tomb. Again, this tomb had never been used for, before. But when Jesus was put in the tomb, it meant Joseph couldn't use it anymore either. Jesus' crucifixion and burial is only part of the message though, isn't it? The best part comes next week or this afternoon if you want to read ahead. And I think we all know it's well worth the read. Jesus' death tells of God's love for us. God the Father and God the Son. It tells us about the importance of obedience, of sacrifice, of keeping our focus on God despite all the challenges and the hard times. The third cup at the Passover meal is the cup of redemption or salvation. Earlier in John's Gospel, Jesus said, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, then I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. When a young man wanted to get married, a bride price was negotiated, and the man had to also prepare an addition to his Father's house for the couple to live in. The church is Christ's bride. He paid the bride price with his life. Jesus, the Lamb of God, died to redeem each of us, to offer us salvation, to enter into a love relationship with him. What is your response this morning? Father in heaven, again, We just marvel that you, the God of wonders, loves us and sent your Son for us and gives us your Spirit to guide us. Father, I pray that nobody here leaves without Jesus, without having accepted the offer of a relationship, of a love relationship he offers. And Father, for those of us who have, I pray that you would just help us to follow in his example of obedience the willingness to sacrifice, Father, to just be in constant communion with you. Father, indeed, as we go through this day, this week, help us, Father, just to do that and to just live our lives in a way that would glorify you. For we ask in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.